Let's take our Bibles and open to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Couldn't have been a better example in special this morning uh, than, than Emmy. We are in, um, I suppose this is the sixth week of this study in 3D Christianity. We spent a couple weeks on the foundation and the cornerstone, which is Christ. And we spent a week on defining the origins and the opportunities of marriage. We spent a week on godly husbands. We probably could spend a month, six weeks on godly husbands. Amen, ladies. <laughs> uh, we spent a week on godly wives. Uh, this week I want to talk a little bit about godly parenting. And uh, I want to challenge you before we start this. Uh, if you're here and, and you're no longer parenting. Um, or if you're here and you have not yet parented. And maybe you never will. I don't, you know. It's not the time to turn it off. Because what we're going to share with you this morning is some truths about parenting. But more so, or, or just as importantly, I want you to comprehend how we look in the scriptures and discard antiquities and cultures and pull out principles and applications. And so, whether or not you are currently parenting, understanding how to see a scripture, recognize 
the culture and antiquity in it, discard it, and remain with the principle and application of it will be a good study for you this morning. So I hope that you will uh, stay with us through uh, the reading or through the preaching of the sermon. Over the past several weeks, we've established the biblical principles for marriage and its participants. And just as surely as there are guidelines and characteristics for the godly marriage, husband and wife, there are most certainly guidelines for parenting and child raising within the scriptures. And our task is to discover, as we look at these passages, what is essential and what is extraneous. If that, those words don't work for you, then we want to discover what are those things that are cardinal rules and what are those things that are cultural and can be discarded. And that is uh, necessary for all scripture. For example, and this is not the passage we're studying, you stay there in Psalm 127, but if I were to put up Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, and if we were to throw that up on the screen and we read it, this is what it would read. I'm going to abridge it a little bit, uh, but you go and look at it for yourself. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. Then it tells a little bit more about this stubborn son who is a drunkard and a glutton. Then it says in verse 21, All the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou evil be put away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now we read that. And we would almost immediately, almost uh, uh, subconsciously throw it out, right? But we should not throw it out. Certainly, there are things, there are cir circumstances, situations that are of a full cultural implication. The, the idea of stoning one's son to death, I can't imagine any of us. There's been moments, <laughs> but as a rule, <laughs> as a rule, I can't imagine any of us would embrace that because culturally that is no longer acceptable today. Praise the Lord, right? Because I was a stubborn and rebellious son. And so we're thankful, but we don't disregard the passage because what we would see is that it teaches an important principle. And the principle is very simple, that this behavior should not be allowed. And the perpetrator of that behavior is to be put away. And if we wanted to bring it more to a direct picture, we would disregard the cultural aspect of stoning and we would discover the principle of putting away sin and evil. That's what it's a picture of. So in your life, if you have an issue of stubborn rebelliousness wherein you are rebelling against the Father, you should seek to eradicate that behavior as if you were stoning it and putting it to death in your life. So the principle's there. And so we would not read that and say, oh, that doesn't apply. No, we would say, I'm glad that's not exactly like that, but there is a principle there to learn. To the contrary, or you might consider it the same, Proverbs 13, 24. I've run into this passage several times doing premarital counseling. Uh, I'm, gonna be, I'm always honest with you. I'm going to be transparent in this particular situation. When I do premarital counseling, I don't even discuss child rearing because the current generation cannot discuss child rearing without first uh, doing away with corporal punishment. And I was raised... Most certainly <laughs> punished in a corporal manner, uh, and I believe in it. And so, you know, I normally say to them, look, here's some principles, and we don't have to dig this up in discussion because there's a lot of cultural disagreement there. But if we look at Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth the rod 
hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. The axiomatic version of that is the principle, the well-known principle of spare the rod, spoil the child. That's what we've heard all of our lives. That's often dismissed as well. The, the dismissal uh, is dismissed as culture, uh, from a cultural aspect, that it's antiquated. And so then the principle is often dismissed as well, but it should not be. Because this is the principle, and it is of a necessity, and it is a marker of a parent who loves, truly loves their children. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because in the New Testament, that same principle is applied to our walk with God. And he, as a father, chases us as children that he loves. And you know that you're his because he chastens you. So we would automatically say, okay, we can't discard that. And then someone would say, yes, yeah, I know, but it's the rod, preacher. The rod is antiquated. Well, it's not. If you understand the rod, the rod is an instrument that differentiates between the hand and discipline. The rod is an instrument of discipline. The hand of the father is an instrument of love and beneficence. And so if the father uses hand, that thing that you thought was love and beneficial has turned into an instrument of discipline. But if he uses the rod, the rod is the instrument of discipline. And so there's a principle that is established in that we would read uh, in, in Hebrews uh, 12, 5 through 11, that that's how God loves us and chastens us. And so what we understand in that principle is that children need discipline and fathers and mothers give, loving fathers and mothers give discipline because of that love rather than instead of that love. Amen. So we begin developing this pattern that we can learn parenting truths from the scriptures regardless of culture or antiquity. We just have to consider the essentials, the cardinal truths, and the principles. That's where we come to today. We could do that from a number of passages, but the Lord's led me to Psalm 127. So if you will, stand with me. Reverence uh, the reading of God's word. And it's only five verses, and so we'll just read the entire psalm. 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, and to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth to for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, here's our verses of focus. Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. I want to speak with you for a few minutes this morning from this psalm on the idea of godly parenting. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Ask him to speak to you today. Father, we love you this morning. We're so grateful. We're so thankful for the eternally settled word of God. We're so thankful to be able to come to it and seek counsel. And Father, we're grateful that we know that where two or three of us are gathered together in your name, that you're present with us. And Father, we're asking now that uh, your presence, the blessed Holy Spirit, would teach uh, and guide and illuminate. Lord, the words we use, charge, challenge, convict, and convert. And God, I pray that you would work among us today in these truths as we seek to parent rightly and to guide our families correctly. Lord, I pray as we continue this morning that as illumination is given, obedience would be observed. 
And that when we leave today, we would walk differently than when we arrived as we walk in obedience to that which you show us. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm is a, a favorite of many. It is quotable. Uh, it is notable. It speaks of the need of the Lord in the establishment of anything or entity of value, whether that be a city, a family, a church. If the Lord is not in the establishment of it, it's in vain. We see that the Lord is vital in the development of the house. He is vital in the defense of the city. He is uh, uh, vital in the desires of the heart. We see a very tremendous description of our children. We see that uh, that description of our children, that they are a grant of wealth. They are a gift of the womb. They are to be garnered like weapons. They are our gratification in this world. And so this morning, I thought for a little while we would just consider the value of children and use that value as an impetus to inspire how we should parent them. He says in chapter, uh, or verse 3, I should say, below, uh, children are an heritage of the Lord. Uh, we take our, our cue directly from that. Children are our heritage, or if you prefer, they are an inheritance from the Lord. When we read that, that word heritage, it really lends itself uh, to heredity or inheritance. It is speaking of something that is assigned or passed down from one generation to another. Uh, wisdom would even recognize it as a gift because it's not something that you earned. It's something that was gifted to you. And this is how our children are described in the scriptures. They are a gift, an inheritance, a value that is passed down to us by the Lord. So they come directly from Him. They are a gift from God to us. There's all sorts of medical things that could be considered there's all sorts of cultural things that could be considered, but this is the truth that should be accepted. That child was specifically designed, if we read Psalm 139, known of God before conception, conceived, knit together in the womb, and gifted specifically to you by God. They are a gift. They are an inheritance. Again, when we think about that concept, we begin to, to note the, the undertones of the sovereignty of God as it relates to marriage, to partnership, to parentage, to children. This would speak to the one who is dissatisfied with their spouse or discontented with their marriage or disgruntled with their parents or disgusted with their own children, the, the questions that would come from that of a spiritual nature are, did you marry as God directed? Are you equally yoked? Have you submitted to the lordship of Christ so that you might perform and function properly as a spouse and a parent? Because God knows where you are. He knows who you are, I've got a, a, a much spookier concept for you. He knows how you are. You ever say that? Well, you know how I am. No, but God does. He knows exactly how you are. And, and he knows unto whom you were married. He, he, the, all of that is within the purview of God. And most would believe sovereignly directed. But that's not the point today. The point is the children. They are an inheritance. And so we want to view them as a gift given by God. Let's think of them as a treasure as they've been passed down to us from someone obscenely wealthy. And let's ask if they are a gift, if they are a treasure, if they are an inheritance, 
then how should I treat them? I want you to think about that for a moment. If they, if children are an inheritance, uh, a gift, something you could not have accomplished on your own, someone gave it to you, what would be the, the first concept that we would think of in any construct other than children, the very first concept that we would think of is I must provide protection for that thing. I've got to protect that thing. I can't get that thing again. It's irreplaceable. It is, it is invaluable. It is, it is not something I can go out and replace. It is, I have to guard it as if it is the only one because guess what? It's the only one. And it was given to me of means outside of myself by a sovereign God. And so I must provide protection for it. If we were speaking of a literal treasure, we would take precautions to protect it. Well, they are a literal treasure. And so we should take great precautions with them because the enemy is everywhere and he is seeking to steal them away or to harm them or to violate them. And the enemy, who is the enemy, someone would say? Well, the enemy is in many forms. Uh, the enemy is most forms of entertainment. The enemy is very present. If they can get you to laugh at it, it won't be long before you'll agree with it. And shortly after that, you'll participate in it. Uh, if they can connect with you rhythmically through music and create a so-called soundtrack to your life, it won't be long before you'll start accepting all sorts of things that you would not have accepted before. That's not, that's not nonsense. That's reality. And so the enemy is there. The, the enemy is in many forms of education. And, uh, you know, I'm not a conspiratist. I'm not an isolationist. I'm none of those things. But if the education is not supporting godly values, it is a tool of the enemy. Absolutely, 100%. The enemy oftentimes is in hobbies and pastimes. Because what happens is that hobby or that pastime becomes the God. It becomes the object of worship. And your time and your energy and your effort goes to that object of worship. And for a parent, it, that could be to the lack of your children. For the children, it could be to the lack, for the lack of God. That becomes that thing in their life. The enemy is often your job. It is your appetite. It, it may be your fetish. Your, it could be your poor relationship with your spouse. This is the most frightening aspect to me. Having, having raised not terribly successful two children. And the not success is on me, not on them. They, they did pretty well considering what they were saddled with. The enemy is a hundred different things. And all of those things are, are vying to steal that treasure that God has given you. Society is devaluing them to you. It is devaluing you to them. Society is seeking to break the home, to split the home, to divide the home. Social media is seeking to isolate certain individuals. So there's entire subcultures uh, that they're a part of that the rest of the family is not. And it's a form of isolation where everybody's living together. But they don't know each other. They're not together. The, the enemy is a, a, a lackadaisical attitude that says... Well, you know, kids will be kids, or boys will be boys, or girls will be girls, or whatever platitude allows you to unhook and disconnect from them 
as if whatever they're going through has to be gone through by themselves and on their own. And you, the, the wisdom in the room, has nothing to input to it. And why would we do that? Well, because it's easier in the moment. If they were literal treasure, if they were silver and gold, and they're much more valuable than that, but, but if they were that, we would guard them day and night. We would lock them away. We would study them to make sure that they are whole. We would always know where they were, who they were with, and what they were looking at, and who was looking at them. We would know. That guy's eyeballing my treasure. There's something not right about him. He's looking at my treasure. That, that woman, she's looking at my treasure. Why is she so interested in my treasure? We would, we would care and, and we, would, we would wrap them in prayer and we would clothe them in truth and we would inoculate them with the scriptures and we would love them like... We love ourselves. And the way that Christ loved us. And I can hear somebody saying, man, you're describing, you're describing a nightmare parent. You don't have to be some neurotic helicopter parent to do that. You know what you have to be? You have to be diligent. You have to be devoted. You have to be dutiful. You have to, first and foremost, have a right relationship with the Lord you have to be obedient to him in your life. And when you do that, you're going to view that life as a treasure. Something that's very special. And you're going to remember what it was like for you. And you're not going to remember that you didn't get the latest fads or the newest fashions or, and I'm going to give them everything they're wanting. You're going to remember that the enemy did me this way, this way, and this way, and I'm not going to let the enemy do them that way. They are children, a heritage. They are an inheritance. They are a treasure, and we must provide protection from them, and that can't be done sleeping at the wheel. He says in the latter portion of verse 3 there that they are the fruit of the womb and, and a reward. They are, children are not only a heritage, they are a harvest. They are our increase. They are, for some of us, the better part of ourselves. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, I'm, I'm 54 My daughter's 29, my boy is 24. And sometimes I look at them and think, well, if everything else burns up, I, I did that. And sometimes I feel really good about that, and other times I think, oh God, Lord help me for, for what I didn't do. But, but they are the increase of us. The psalmist says that they are the fruit of the womb. They are a reward. And what we know from a logical concept that is that if they are fruit, then of course there is a harvest. And with a harvest, there is a crop or a vineyard or an orchard which must be maintained and cultivated if we expect to see any increase. What we understand is that there is no fruit without some labor. Right? There's, there's work that goes in to that thing being fruitful. And so that means that we have to, as parents, be actively involved. And we, we should never entrust our responsibility to anyone else or have expectations of anyone else in the maturation of our children because we are going to be held personally responsible for those kids. No one else will be. I say this often, and, and it's because it applies in so many ways. Do you want to know why pastors are sometimes so militant about the church that they pastor? 
It's because when I stand before the beam of seat of Christ, you're not going to be there. When I stand in front of him and answer for the things done, you're not going to be there. He's not going to be able to say, well, it's because they did so and so. I'm going to answer for it. And as a parent, you're going to answer for that child. You're going to stand in the presence of an eternal God who loved you so much that he gave his son for you. And you're going to give an account of what you did with that treasure he entrusted you with. Sure. Their teacher's not going to answer. I'm not going to answer for them. You are. We're going to be held responsible and more immediately. We, we as parents are the ones who reap the result of the work. So I ask the same question. If they are a fruit, if they are my increase then how must I treat them? How must I, uh, uh, how do I interact with them? Well, I think first and, and, and foremost that we have to prune and progress them. It's our responsibility. Uh, I'm not a gardener. There's a good produce section at Publix. And I don't have to pull weeds or plow or anything. Uh, but I've planted some stuff before. You know, if you plant, somebody's going to argue with me. This is conceptual. I don't care. It's okay if I'm wrong. If you plant a tomato plant and let it run its course, somebody tell me that I'm not wrong in saying that it's going to lay down on the ground and the fruit's going to rot. Am I right? God is good. <laughs> you have to be involved. You, know, you got to put a cage around it. You got to string it up, all that stuff, right? It's, it's the same concept. We cannot just let nature take its course. We, we have to be involved with the fruit. We have to be involved with the process, and that means pruning it and progressing it along. It involves a careful watching. It means sometimes you take some things away. Sometimes you add some things in. It involves adjustments, multiple adjustments when we're talking about children because every child is different. I only had two. They were night and day. Completely different. I could look at Kayla. Most of you know her. I could just look at her and say, I'm so disappointed. And it was over. Tears and repentance and telling me things I didn't want to know. I mean... <laughs> You just, I could look at my son and say I'm disappointed, and he'd be like, oh, well, it's too bad, Dad. You'll get over it. You know, I just about have to beat him to get anywhere with him. Totally different individuals, and we understand that those adjustments are, are often, and they are necessary. Sometimes this process of prune and progress it requires eradicating some pests and some parasites that come along. We're not friendly to those things when they get in our garden. We should not be friendly with them when they get a hold of our treasure. Get rid of them and, and, and whatever is necessary. Sometimes it, it, it requires disturbing the ground, fertilizing and breaking up hard things. But this is what I know as a Christian parent. I can't sleep on that job. I, I cannot just let the little things get by. I'm constantly tending the fruit because I understand those little things can become big things. And you know what that child's going to say? I was one. I had to. And I'm confident that you've been involved with them too. They're going to say you're overreacting. Well, that's okay. Because what you know from a Wisdom perspective is that if the Lord allows them to live long enough, they're going to have a child and they get a chance to overreact, right? But go ahead and overreact. I would rather overreact than underperform. We have a job to do. And, and we don't let the little things go. I'm constantly tending the fruit. And what that equates to is it's a very simple concept that has become very difficult in the age in which we live 
and, and it's, it's bothersome to me. I don't know how you fix it. But all it is is involvement and inclusion. It means that you are constantly involved in their life and they are included in yours. It always disturbs me. I worked with children and youth in several churches before the Lord allowed us to pastor. Always disturbs me when I talk to a, a especially a, a, like a fifth grade and up, and you say to them, what does your dad do for a living? If they can't answer you, it's indicative of the home. And all you have to do is sit back and watch that child and you will see that it's indicative of the home. And is it that kid's fault that they don't know what's going on? Absolutely not. It is not. It is that somebody has not included them in the process of living. This is who I am. This is what I do. They've not talked to them. They have not shared with them. It's, it's a simple thing of involvement and inclusion. And it, it, now it looks like quality time. And, and don't get into that argument. I don't think we should get into the argument about the difference between quality and quantity. Do both. Do both. You're their lifeline. Nobody else loves them like you. No one else is responsible for them like you. Nobody else is going to treat them like you. And you, you invest time, family time, family altar. And you may not be good at family altar. It's one of my greatest regrets, family altar and family devotion. We didn't do that well. We just didn't do it well. We were in church all the time. They were Christian school educated, Bible camp, great relationship. Both of our kids still, we did not do family altar and family devotion well. We didn't do it well. I'm, I know it. But it should be a, a number one focus of a family. And, and you ha you're responsible for that. Family discussions about meaningful matters. It, it never surprises me how people will allow their kids to intake all sorts of damaging information via entertainment and social media, but they won't have an honest conversation with them around the table about economics and what things cost and how hard it is to get by. I would rather them know the one than I would the other. I don't particularly want them to know what the latest fad is in Uruguay. It doesn't matter to me. What I want them to know is that uh, this is how you get through life, and we do this faithfully depending upon the Lord. We prune and progress them. Look at number four, verse four. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of, thy, of the youth. Children are not only our heritage, our harvest, they're also our helpers. They are uh, literally uh, an investment. They, they are helping us if we raise them rightly. When you think of arrows in the hand of an archer, I want you to ask this question. Certainly we've all seen uh, visions or scenes of war that included archers, are they close to the fight? Not normally, right? So what is that archer without any arrows? He's no good. He's, he is, he's unarmed. He has a bow and no arrows. He could, he's got one shot to throw that bow. <laughs> but he can't do any good because he's, he's unarmed. He has no weapons. And when we think about that picture, we see that with the arrows, he is armed, he is helpful, he is able to impact, and that is what children are for us. John Phillips uh, says this, he says that arrows in the hands of a mighty man are arrows he intends to use and use effectively. Those arrows are going to go where he wants them to go and do what he wants them to do. I would add this to Dr. Phillips, those arrows will often go where he cannot go and do what he cannot do otherwise. If we, we can look at almost any uh, concept of success, genera generationally it's better. Old money, 
It's normally more money than new money. Old money is generational money. Uh, if you want to boil it down to the ministry, you, you show me a, a, a pastor or an evangelist that God has used mightily, they are typically second, third, or fourth generation in their family. That, that there has been a foundation built and, and God is using that foundation. What, what if we were to, to view our children that way, that, that, that they are my chance to impact this country and this culture for the good in the future, if I prepare them rightly and launch them correctly, they're going to do things that I could never do. That's the picture that we get. Well, so if they are arrows, how do I treat them? Well, I, I must prepare them correctly. I must purpose them correctly. And I have to point them. I have to aim them correctly. I, I have to ensure that they are straight and true, that they are solid and well-balanced. I have to be sure that they are well-aimed and fully engaged before release occurs. That's where scriptural training and church training come into play. If this part, this scriptural, spiritual, church aspect of life is left to the school systems, public school systems, the internet or social media influencers or the government or the colleges, your child is going to be a walking contradiction to you. They're, they're going to be a, a, a picture of confusion. They're going to have one concept that they have witnessed in you however good or bad it is, and they're going to have all of this other that has come from them from the outside that has really truly molded them into a modern societal fit. This idea of training in, in the spiritual aspect, in the scriptural aspect, is primarily the parent's responsibility. And I hope you'll hear me right here because I've had this thrown at me so many times in the last 20 years. It's, and it's always guised a little differently, but it means the same thing. It's not the church's responsibility, but the church can help and will if you're faithful to the church. It's not the pastor's responsibility, but the pastor can help. And I can't speak for all pastors, but I will if you give me the opportunity. But I can't do it if you're not here. I can't build a program here to entice your children to come. That's not my responsibility. It wouldn't work if I did. They're following your lead. Most of them are riding with you. I recently uh, read this quote. It said that a pastor will never out-preach the parents. 100% correct. Uh, we, we used a Christian school system for our children. Uh, if anybody cares, if I was raising school-age children today, I would homeschool them. But at that moment, uh, 20 years ago, uh, the Christian school was the best uh, place that we thought we could uh, get to. And I would go to school events and I would sit with other parents and have a conversation with them. And they would typically say something like this. They would say, oh, we're not at all religious. Uh, we don't go to church. We have our kids here because this is the most affordable private school in town. And the first few times I heard that, you know, it was kind of like I was insulted. Not insulted. I, I was offended by them. But what it occurred to me very quickly is they were developing a child who was institutionally taught Christianity but never spiritually instructed in Christian things. And that kid 
Most of them nowadays are, are they're my age, my kid's age. They get into social media and it, in, it influences them and supports everything they're seeing. This is religion. This is life. And the two don't go together. And then they get to college and everything spiritual is attacked from a progressive point of view. And now they have completely devalued religion. They have completely devalued the scriptures. They have completely devalued the spiritual things. And that kid is now 25 or 30 years old. And they, they, are, they look like, act like, and speak like an agnostic or an atheist. And mom and dad come to my office and say, would you pray for Jimmy? I've been praying for Jimmy for 15 years. I cannot out-preach the mom and dad. The church cannot outperform the home. It's impossible. And, and so we have this picture of the need. And so we have to prepare them. Well, what, what does the parent do in preparing them? Well, let me say this. Your scriptural and spiritual acumen, your dedication and devotion to the church or the things of the Lord, your attempts to live right in the eyes of the Lord, your attempts to serve in the house of the Lord, your efforts to be a meaningful Christian will all set the bar for your children. Listen to me very well right here. If it is secondary to you, it'll be tertiary or lower to them. If it is occasional for you, it will be less than occasional, more along the lines of rare, for them, and likely non, if it is rare for you, I should say, it's likely non-existent for them. And I'm fixing to put the, 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 the boot right back on you, Dad. It's you. It's you. You're the one. You're the spiritual head of the house. Christ dictated it so. You're the spiritual leader of the house. The scriptures dictates it so. And they are following you. And if you are a nominal Christian, they will not be, most likely, a Christian. And there are exceptions to every rule. But by and large, that's how it looks. You prepare them. You purpose them. Well, how do I purpose my children? Well, I teach them the word. I don't wait on somebody else to do that. I don't wait on someone else to do that. I don't excuse myself from, from that galvanizing opportunity, I teach them the word myself. I surround them with truth as much as is in my power. I pour truth into them. Because if you don't purpose them, the world will. The agnostics will. The atheists will. The humanists will. They are a treasure. Why would we surrender them without a fight? Why wouldn't we at some point stop living for ourselves? Start dying to Christ so that we can live for him and raise that treasure. The parents must point them or aim them. If we do these things, we can aim them well and release them clean. We don't encumber them with our failures and our misdirections because we've submitted to the Lordship of Christ. The last thing he says in verse 5 is, Happy is the man that hath this quiver full. Our children are our happiness, they are our inspiration to continue. It's, it's not hopeless because they are a revelation of what God can do in a submitted life. And I can take pleasure in them. If we value them as a treasure, view them as a harvest, verse them as a helper, we can visit them as a blessing. Would you stand with me this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed in the presence of the Lord here a moment. Are you parenting according to the scriptures? 
it's likely that only you can honestly answer that question. Are you parenting according to the scriptures? Is the Lord the architect of your home? If you could write down the, what the greatest need is in your home, would it be that? Help raising my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Would you, in honesty for a moment, spend time with the Lord and ask Him to fulfill that greatest need? Ask Him to help you to be the parent the Scriptures instruct you to be. Father, I pray you'd use this time of invitation. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to engage. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Would you come this morning? so much for being here today. Praise the Lord for that.